Hi, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is 112BK. Coming up, hate crimes in the U.S. are up. In the past few weeks, we've seen our share in Brooklyn. As civil rights groups mobilize to confront recent acts, we'll talk to an attorney from the Legal Defense Fund about policy proposals on the table. At least, at the very least, every federal agency should be required to report. And then state agencies can be required to report if their funding is based on their reporting. If you want to actually receive federal funding, then you need to actively participate in the hate crime statistics. For nearly 80 years, the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund has been fighting for justice, equality, and advocacy across the nation. Launched in 1940 by its first director counsel, Thurgood Marshall, who would go on to become the first African-American Supreme Court justice, the organization has represented the likes of Muhammad Ali, Martin Luther King, and Rosa Parks, whose arrest 63 years ago this week triggered the Montgomery bus boycott of 1955. Despite all that work and the work of other civil rights organizations, we've entered some dark times. The number of hate crimes in the U.S. has spiked, and a recent spate of incidents around the country, including here in Brooklyn, has us all unsettled. On Tuesday, members of the New York City Council announced their intention to create an Office of Hate Crimes Prevention. Here to talk about these developments is Keturah Topps, Policy Counsel at NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Welcome to Woman 2 bk Thank you, Mackenzie. Thanks for having me. So tell me a little bit about the Legal Defense Fund. Why was it established as sort of a, a standalone entity within the NAACP? So I think if you go back to LDF's history, the Legal Defense Fund, we kind of reached this period where it was very evident that we needed to have legal action to address sort of the extreme racist um, discriminatory actions that were taking place in our country. I mean, this is no secret to anyone in this country. We understand that that's sort of the bedrock of American history, and we needed an avenue to address that. Most of its time, the Legal Defense Fund has been predominantly focused on litigation and making sure that the civil rights of African Americans were enforced and they were able to actually live the lives that they were allowed to as citizens. More recently, we've seen LDF sort of transition into taking a broader approach. So rather than just focusing on litigation, we now have our Third Good Marshall Institute, which was just launched in 2015, which now focuses on research, focuses on policy initiatives, archives, you know, trying to have a holistic approach because as the Times mandate, we're not necessarily in times where litigation is our only tool. Mm. And I want to come back to that a little bit later about some of the policy solutions okay. to hate crimes. But, you know, it's a very different landscape from when the Legal Defense Fund was established in 1940. You know, at the time, lynchings were commonplace, for mm -hmm. example. Talk to me a little bit about the shift in the mandate or the work that the LDF has done um, in, modern, in modern times. Well, I mean, it's sort of what I was just saying, that we've now shifted to more wholesome view of different avenues that we can take to address races and uh, discrimination. But I think more importantly, a lot of these issues are still the same. Um, and I think we sort of have this tendency to say, well, that was so long ago and we don't need to address this. I mean, yes, lynchings were common, but lynchings have happened, you know, recently. Segregation it's also still very rampant. We still have housing discrimination. I mean, a lot of the core issues that were the bedrock of LDF's practice and LDF origination are still occurring today. And I think that's important to remember. 
Talk to me about the term hate crime. Not only what makes a hate crime in a legal sense, Mm -hmm. but also maybe if you can, the origin of that phrase. It's such a powerful and evocative set of words. Where did that term come about and how did that (laughs) enter sort of our our legal framework? Well, I don't know if I can speak to the exact origins of hate crime, the exact term, but what a hate crime is, is essentially any crime that's motivated, some sort of prejudice, and that can be based on race, religion, sexual orientation. We've seen that term evolve um, from 1968 Civil Rights Act and what sort of we understood as hate crimes to federal hate crime statutes that were implemented to 2009 when President Obama actually expanded the definition of hate crimes and Hate Crimes Act to include abuses or to include crimes focused on sexual orientation, gender, disability. So it's evolved over the years, but it's always gone back to the same rhetoric of crimes that are committed because of either an actual or perceived participation in a group or characteristic. And how are hate crimes prosecuted differently from a normal crime? So generally, hate crimes have more severe penalties, of course, and we have a a federal hate crime statute that applies to all, but Actually, this is something that we've been pushing to accomplish. Most states have hate crime statutes but don't require hate crime reporting and disclosure. So although there are these statutes that exist, there isn't always an avenue for relief under a state law. And there are actual states today that do not have hate crime statutes at all. It really just varies. It depends on the statute, depends on the state, unless you're under the federal hate crime statute. But generally, the idea is an enhanced penalty, sort of enhanced criminality, because what hate crimes, uh, we've seen that they're not the same as regular crimes. There's Hate crimes tend to be more violent, more aggressive. They come from a place of animus and anger. Those examples are the reasons we see hate crimes not only rising, but becoming more extreme. I mean, if you think about the 11 people that were shot at the synagogue in Pittsburgh, if you think about... You know, Dylan Roof walking into an African-American church and just murdering nine people who he was worshiping with. These crimes are extreme, and I think the term accurately reflects that they do come from a place of anger and bias. Mm-hmm. So one of the current hate crimes that's being discussed um, is the ongoing trial of the Charlottesville white supremacist mm-hmm. who killed someone, ran over someone, a counter-protester. Right. His defense team is trying to say that this was not premeditated, that he got in the car and he panicked that this is Mm self-defense. Meanwhile, we have text messages that he sent his mom the day before, image of Adolf Hitler saying, be careful. And he said, we're not the ones who need to be careful. Mm -hmm. So how do you go about establishing that this murder of a counter-protest was a hate crime? Clearly, he was a person filled with hate. How do you draw the connection between that and the murder of Heather Heyer as an actual legal hate crime. Right. Well, let me clarify first, just because you use the term hate crime, that doesn't mean that you need to show hate. He would need to prove that he hated her or that his actions were motivated based on characteristics of a protected class, such as race, which I think is is most appropriate here, race, religious affiliation. And so that'll be something that his attorneys are going to have to show that he didn't have that intent. But it doesn't really revolve around hate. Right. Hate is so subjective. How can you prove that in a court of law? Yeah, exactly. 
So I want to talk a little bit about sort of the rise of hate crimes as Mm -hmm. well. The FBI has reported that there was an increase in the last two years, Mm -hmm. uh, which roughly corresponds with the amount of time that President Trump has been in office. Mm -hmm. And this is a quote from Mark Levine, who's a New York City council member. He says, it's not lost on any of us that the current epidemic of hate crimes that we're living through started at almost the exact moment that Donald Trump launched his presidential campaign. And it is only built as he has continued to poison the rhetoric in this country. Do you see a relationship at all between Trump's rhetoric and the rise in hate crimes? Can we attribute the rise to increased reporting or awareness? What do you think this jump in numbers can be attributed to? Mm -hmm. Well, that's a great question. I think it would be irresponsible of us to completely ignore the fact that there is this huge correlation between this administration and this spike in hate crimes. And it's not just a spike, it's such a significant one. Currently, there's over 950 active hate groups in the U.S. right now. Um, And we had been seeing a decrease in hate crimes and hate-based groups. So the KKK, for example, while we think of them as this sort of big, ominous, scary hate group, their numbers had actually been dwindling for the past couple years. In 2015, when President Trump began campaigning, and then in 2016, we saw those numbers spike all over again. So it absolutely is attributed to this administration's rhetoric. The Trump administration has been so consistently divisive in all areas, not just racial minorities, religious minorities, based on sexual orientation. I mean, every spectrum of anyone that is different in this country has been attacked, and this administration has been very clear that they have no issues and no problems advancing such rhetoric. When you see that from the top, at one of the most powerful positions in the country, in the world even, of course people feel empowered, people feel emboldened. I mean, we saw a wave of hate crimes within the first 10 days after President Trump's election, after his nomination. And a lot of times people didn't hold back. They said, you know, we want you out of this country. President Trump is going to build a wall. Like, these things are very directly correlated. So it would be absolutely absurd to say that it didn't count for the rise. And even worse, now that we've seen this spike in hate crimes, we haven't heard our leaders affirmatively stepping out against it and saying, absolutely not, this is not acceptable. Here are the concrete actions we're going to follow up with. And so when you have all of that, and then you have the fact that hate crimes are underreported, You have the fact that they're underdocumented. You have the fact that a lot of communities that are marginalized, that are the victims of hate crimes, don't feel comfortable reporting to the authority figures who would be the ones to stop this. So all of those factors pretty much indicate that, yeah, I mean, this administration has had a huge part in it. But they can change it. They can absolutely change it. We can absolutely take steps forward to change this. It just it requires effort. And what might prevent someone from reporting? What have you heard from people? Are they afraid of repercussions? Do they just maybe not trust law enforcement? So there's two issues with reporting. The first is that people don't feel comfortable all the time. And I think that can be for a variety of reasons. It could be something as simple as, I don't think I'm going to be believed. I think the people that I would be reporting to are the people who are in power. Right. If I'm in a community and I don't feel comfortable with my local law enforcement and I feel like they may be discriminating against me, 
this isn't the best avenue to go to to report a hate crime of discrimination. But often, even times when people report, there is a lack of documentation. There needs to be training for law enforcement across the country. Documenting a hate crime often comes down to a law enforcement officer's discretion. So while I may tell you this incident happened to me, if you're the law enforcement officer who's writing the report and you think, ah, that's not a hate crime, and, and you know you don't check that or that data's not submitted to the FBI, then it doesn't really matter if I reported it. And then we have an overwhelming problem here. So many local and state agencies simply don't report. They don't report. Right now, the statistics that you were reading from, the FBI's hate crime statistics released from just 2017 are probably the most recent that we have to go on. Those numbers are alarming, but they're only a drop in the bucket, and they're severely underrepresented and underreported. So if you have all of these agencies across the country who aren't reporting to the FBI, they're, they aren't required to. It's right. all voluntary. It's voluntary. Yeah. So you have top major cities in the U.S. saying, nope, no hate crimes this year. I saw that Miami, yeah. the larger Miami region, said mm-hmm. that there Zero. were no incidences. Zero. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of like, okay. Right. Right. I mean, even places with historically racial, religious tensions— Those places are still allowed to say, oh, no, we didn't have any or just not report at all. And that's part of what we're pushing to change is that we want the Department of Justice to say, no, there needs to be requirements. At least at the very least, every federal agency should be required to report. And then state agencies can be required to report if their funding is based on them reporting. If you want to actually receive federal funding, then you need to actively participate in the hate crime statistics. That, that's a simple solution. So many of the problems that you mentioned about why people underreport not being believed, mm-hmm. um, it being at the discretion of a law enforcement agent in a position of power to decide whether to pass it along or not, remind mm-hmm. me of victims of sexual assault mm-hmm. also not coming mm-hmm. forward. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, I mean, that gender-based violence is, I suppose, a form of hate crime of in course, a way. Do you work with sexual assault organizations to sort of information share and, and develop best practices about how to combat these issues? Yeah, well, we work with a variety of civil rights organizations, um, some focused on sexual assault, some focused on a wide range of other things. And I agree that there's definitely similarities between the two. It really just depends on the specific situation and the specific instance. I think for something like hate crimes, where we can all see it, we can all jump on board with it, and there are really clear avenues of changing this. I mean, when we talk about not reporting um, because of worry about law enforcement that could easily be circumvented with sort of a hotline or, you know, some sort of other database. There are just so many avenues that the sensitivity of a hate crime can be addressed without sort of the nuances that are involved with, like, sexual assault, where Mm -hmm. there's a whole other host of issues that are involved with whether or not a victim wants to report. What we're seeing is just not having the avenues to report not having the avenues to report maybe anonymously and not having methods in place that ensure that once you do report, that report will be documented, that will be given to the FBI, and that will be included in the statistics. Speaking of statistics, I just want to read another stat here. A recent article stated that the New York chapter of the Council on American-Islamic Relations reported a 974% increase in anti-Muslim discrimination, harassment, and hate crimes in New York State from 2015 to 2017. 
what would you say to someone who says that figure sounds unbelievable? Because it does sound like a totally unbelievable figure, 974% increase. Um, you know, are, are people saying, oh, well, that has to be as a result of a broadening of definitions or maybe uh, over-reporting? What would your response to that be? I would definitely not say it's unbelievable. <laughs> That's the first thing. And this is why data is so critical. And I'll go back to that point over and over again, because the thing is, we can't see the full picture. We constantly are looking at a very small snapshot. So maybe it seems unbelievable if we hadn't actually been reporting it before and if we hadn't actually understood the full breadth of how this type of discrimination is prevalent. But I also think that we are doing a good job as a society of bringing more awareness to this. People are more likely to understand how serious this is because they're social media. Because now when hate crimes occur, not only is the media covering it, but you have someone recording it, posting it on social media, spreading it around. And so this gives those who sort of were maybe able to say this isn't really serious or this doesn't happen anymore mm -hmm. that was so long ago an opportunity to say no this is very real and it's life-threatening and it's urgent and it has to be addressed immediately and so maybe that pushes that department to start reporting when it didn't and maybe that pushes officers to start being more aware of of the types of actions that could constitute a hate crime and training and things like that it's all a cycle you know what i'm saying and there's literally no segment of our population of our society that isn't impacted by hate crimes so every single person has a job to do um, and i think as we increase awareness we're going to see more data and we're going to see more of these things come into light and so you personally work on the policy side of things. We've already talked a little bit about some of the policy solutions mm -hmm. from tying funding to reporting. But, but talk to me a little bit about the role that policy has to play in combating hate crimes. Policy is everything. <laughs> and that's not just because I'm policy counsel. <laughs> no, I mean, I think, as I was mentioning before, like LDF is really focused on taking a holistic approach to the, the problems that we see today. And while we do have these hate crime statues and we have different you know, legal avenues, addressing policies head on is a great way to sort of combat the culture. It's a great way to attack a specific idea, a specific issue, and figure out all the ways around it. It's a great way to bring different resources, to bring community organizers, to bring members of different faiths together, to figure out how can we be creative and how can we really change what we're seeing without having to file a lawsuit or wait till someone is a victim of a hate crime and then, you know, go through the full litigation process. It allows us to make policy changes right now which is why we've been pushing so hard for the Department of Justice to sort of implement some of the major changes that we've asked for. I mean, just less than two months ago now, LDF with a couple other civil rights organizations wrote a letter to our then Attorney General Jeff Sessions urging him to address this rise of hate crimes and, and listing very concrete ways that this can be changed, things that we can do. You know, we're waiting. We're still waiting. <laughs> They've got a lot going on. They so. do. I mean, and to their credit, you know, the acting attorney general has stated that he's against hate crimes, which is great, and we commend that, the public speaking out. I believe DOJ just released a new website focused on hate crimes where there's resources, additional training for law enforcement. That's all very helpful, and, and these steps, you know, definitely are critical. But we have a lot more work to do, and I think the biggest thing that we can do is put the narrative around how violent, 
how urgent, how terrifying these are. I mean, quite frankly, like I, as an African-American woman, you constantly are aware that at any minute in our society, these things are happening. And, you know, black people have been the target of hate crimes for decades in this country. It's nothing new. But to this day, black people are still one of the most targeted groups for hate crimes. Most hate crimes attack on a racial basis, and most of those are for black people. And then right after that, you know, we have hate crimes that are focused on religion, and most of that is for Jewish communities. It's terrifying. And I think the stats are like a hate crime happens every hour of every day. And if that's where we are when we're not reporting, when we're not fully documenting the hate crimes, can you imagine what's really happening? So important to remind people that this is not a problem that exists in the past. Yeah. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you. We really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate it. it seems New Yorkers have turned up their noses at the city's ambitious organics collection program. Not enough people are participating. So if you were among those who have been looking enviously at other neighborhoods' brown bins and wondering when you might get yours, your wait isn't over. The expansion is being put on hold. Why is food waste disposal essential to our communities, and why won't New York just get its shit-talky mushrooms together and do it? Well, that's today's issue on the table. Food and organic waste cost a lot to dispose of. And then there are the immediate environmental impacts. When food is disposed of in a landfill, it quickly rots and becomes a significant source of methane, a potent greenhouse gas with 21 times the global warming impact of carbon dioxide. Not to mention that landfills account for more than 20% of all methane emissions. So take that, cow farts. By contrast, the use of recycled food waste as compost helps improve soil health and structure. It also increases drought resistance and reduces the need for supplemental water, fertilizers, and pesticides. Mayor Bill de Blasio introduced his pilot for the organic food waste collection five years ago as part of the Zero Waste Program, which aims to reduce landfill waste to zero by 2030. De Blasio was hoping hundreds of thousands of tons of the city's leftovers and yard waste would be churning their way through the system by now to be turned into compost, gas, or electricity. Except they're not. It seems the biggest obstacle facing this program is the ick factor. New Yorkers just don't want to be storing this glop in their already crowded kitchens, especially when you've got a big family, not enough room in the freezer, or a long walk to the bins. The city collected only about 13,000 tons from residents last year and found that the 3.5 million people currently in the voluntary program are only separating 10.6% of their potential scraps. To put that in perspective, we as a city generate about 1 million tons of organic waste a year. And to put that in perspective, that's the weight of three Empire State Buildings. So if we're only capturing, say, a single floor's worth, that's not cost effective. So what are the alternatives? Well, we can pay exorbitant amounts to put it on a train to Pennsylvania or a barge headed out to sea. Or we as citizens can grow up, grab life by the bagels, and completely normalize the separation and composting of our food scraps. If my 70-year-old mother in San Francisco can learn to compost because there it's the law, then why can't we? I get it. It can sometimes feel like a luxury to be able to do things that might benefit the environment. It takes time, some effort, and some sacrifice, and in this case, the occasional waft of last week's lettuce. 
But if we were averse to things malodorous, would we be living in the city anyway? Come on, New York. Take a bite out of that apple and then put it in the brown bin, bitches. That's the show for today. Hope you can join me when we're back here tomorrow for our last show of the season. This episode of 112BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. The show is written and series produced by Ross Tuttle. Fred Brown is senior producer. Shireen Bargi is our digital journalist. And Isabel Alcantara is the associate producer. It is recorded in studio by Eric Hogseg, Clinton Filson Jr., and Antonio M. Rosario. Ayn Van is the production assistant. The show is edited by Mira Al-Rahim. Alexander Pointzolo is our post-production supervisor. And Emily Bogosian is our post-producer. Executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias. 